The Gospel, a basic truth, is sponsored by One Jump Ahead, a nonprofit sport ministry with a focus on strengthening families on our journey together. They provide a family oriented sport with Christ centered values and a unique look into how jump rope goes hand in hand with the gospel and our daily walk with Christ. Check them out. Go to onejumpahead.org. That's onejumpahead.org. Greetings. The Gospel of Basic Truth. We're looking at places in Scripture where we can find the Gospel message in addition to John 3.16. We do this to encourage your faith and to give you tools to help speak with friends and family about the Gospel. Last time we were in the Old Testament, we looked at the prophet Isaiah and one of his um, servant songs. Now, prophecy in the Old Testament tends to be in poetic form. And so we looked at the last of the servant songs. Again, this is some poetry. And this is, of course, Isaiah 52 and 53. You know, we clearly saw in poetic form the presentation Christ and his crucifixion, suffering for the sins of others and being perfect and yet living and ruling forever afterwards. Today we're still going to be in the Old Testament, but instead of looking at poetry, uh, this time we're going to look at what's called a type. Now we contrast that just a little bit with the New Testament. There's very little poetry in the New Testament and most of the things we've looked at, uh, verses, have been part typically of a, a letter which was laying out theological truths. You don't get that in the Old Testament. It's presented differently and often very much in story form. And we're going to see in Genesis chapter 22, the sacrifice of Isaac. Here is a presentation of the gospel. And we're going to look uh, particularly at his father Abraham and what does saving faith look like? So, uh, a, a very fascinating story, and you get done reading it, and you go, wow, okay, I can see the parallel to Christ and the crucifixion. The book Genesis, that's our English. The underlying Hebrew word is something like Bereshith, which means in the beginning. Genesis it consists of 10 accounts. So, we have a if you will, standalone stories. Now they're all connected, but we could have the account of um, uh, Noah, the account of Shem. In all likelihood, these were oral accounts that were passed down and that Moses is the first one to actually put them into writing. Now today we've added uh, chapter and verse numbers and there are 50 chapters. That would not have been in there when it was first written. We're going to start out with uh, what I call the inconvenient truth. Now, if you're going to witness to somebody out of Genesis, they're going to go, oh, come on, that's not real. Well, the inconvenient truth is that over the last 200 years, archaeologists are proving the truth and the accuracy of the Bible, and a lot of them aren't even saved people, but what they're finding is showing that what is in the Bible, and in particular Genesis, is not something that was made up. Now, realize that most uh, liberal scholars, um, liberal Christians, and that's a contradiction in terms, 
don't believe in any of this stuff. They, they don't believe there was a Moses. They don't believe there was an Abraham. And that the entire Bible was written when the Jews were in captivity, 586 BC and later. And you had a bunch of script writers who sat down and said, oh, I got an idea. We're going to call it Genesis. That's what they think. So let me briefly look at some of the archaeology that's out here to show that Genesis is, is very real and it did happen. In the Fertile Crescent, this is where, as far as we know today, that's where civilization got started. Now, in a minute, I'm going to suggest it's a little bit older than that, but... And that would be in what we call the ancient Mesopotamian area. And the first, as uh, that we know of, uh, civilization was uh, the, the Sumerians, Sumer. And now the cities were city-states. There wasn't any great empire, but certainly there was a culture that pervaded all of these city-states. It was very common. And in this uh, this great area, you know, over hundreds and hundreds of years, different people stood up and took over. And so you had different empires that, that did arise. And many of them left um, libraries. And these would be clay. Uh, so all the writing would be on these clay slabs. The most famous is... Um, was written, uh, was discovered, and was put into a uh, library. And nobody, for the longest time, could figure out how to interpret this cuneiform writing. Well, some smart person did figure it out, and it turned out that this is what we call the Epic of Gilgamesh. And in particular, Tablet, tablet 11, <laughs> when they were deciphering it, they went, oh dear, because it is the flood narrative which coincides with Genesis 6 through 8. Now, there was an ark, there was a Noah figure. He has a different name in this Epic of Gilgamesh. But other than different names, it's, you know, the gods were going to destroy mankind, there was going to be water, this couple and their kids are picked to build an ark to bring in the animals. I mean, this is the story of Noah. And it's been setting in this tablet that's over 4,200 years old. And it's just been recently in the last several decades. Okay, where did they get that? Everybody poo-pooed the whole idea of that Noah existed. And yet, 4,000 years ago, they were talking about it. There is um, another uh, uh, clay document, uh, the, Una, the Uma Elish. And... It gives in there the story of creation, and it looks like it was taken out of Genesis 1. Now, the kings, the very first kings uh, of, in Sumar, we have from their ancient libraries the list of the kings. And as they are interpreting it, somebody who knew their Bible goes, this is Genesis 5. There's uh, another epic, it's called the Arthur Hassis epic, and it gives the uh, initial order of events, okay, for creation. And it's in the same order as Genesis chapters 1 through 8. And lastly, and I, 
I find this quite fascinating is what we call the Mari letters. Now, they are a little bit younger than maybe the Epic of Gilgamesh, but they are letters that were written in very, very early uh, uh, Assyrian people. And they describe the daily life and customs 4,000 years ago. And you can find many of them in Genesis chapter 1 through 38. For instance, we know that Abraham and Sarah were not able to have children. And at some point, Sarah offers her husband to have children with her slave, Hagar. Well, that's actually talked about in the Mari letters. That was a common custom. We have in the story of Abraham that... Um, he tells God, well, the person who's going to inherit my estate is this guy named Eleazar from Damascus, probably his estate manager, okay, and uh, a servant. And God says, no, you're going to have a son. Turns out the Mari letters actually talk about that was a very common thing. You'd have an older person who had no children, and so what were you going to do? What you would do is you would have a faithful servant who would commit to taking care of you through your old age and your death, and in return, they would inherit your estate. So we see that in Genesis, and that's um, something that's mentioned in these, these Mari letters. And, and there's many other examples, all of which to say Genesis was not made up by a bunch of scriptwriters uh, in Babylon in 586 B.C. and later. It, this stuff really happened. Genesis as a book, uh, the, the story, the, the plot device that moves the story is this uh, cycle, the cycle of creation or new beginning, followed by rebellion and judgment, and then repeat and repeat. Uh, we have the Garden of Eden. We have new creation. Adam and Eve rebel. God judges them and throws them out of the Garden of Eden. Things get reset. <laughs> Cain and Abel come along real quick. Sin, and that sin keeps getting worse and worse and worse to the point that God then judges the world again and brings in the flood. Okay, things get reset. We got a new family, uh, and life starts all over again, only to go into rebellion. And, of course, we end up at the Tower of Babel, and it goes on. Genesis is basically prose, so you don't have a lot of uh, poetry. In fact, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are written by Moses. And he does have poetry here and there, but he writes basically in prose. Let's talk a little bit about dating here. Dating ancient civilizations um, it's not easy. And what they don't tell you is <laughs> almost everything is dated according to the, the chronology of the pharaohs in Egypt. The dirty little secret is nobody agrees on what that chronology is. So you put four, excuse me, three Egyptologists in a room and ask them what their chronology is of the, uh, uh, you know, all the kingdoms going all the way back to the beginning, and you'll have four different opinions. The best 
we seem to be able to do is to look back to about 4000 BC. So that is like 6,000 years. I think it's only a coincidence that Bishop Usher talked about that, but I'm not here to defend him. In truth, in the last several decades, archaeologists have been blown away. Recently in, uh, say, last few decades, in, I believe it's Turkey, buried under the sand, they found this incredible complex, an incredible complex. And no one ever knew it was there. It was definitely covered up. Somebody, when they abandoned it, they, they went to a great deal of effort to cover it so it would not be found. And you can go online and look up Golbeke Tepe. Well, in more recent, we're now finding, well, I should say Golbeke Tepe, there seems to be no debate. It is 19,000 years old, okay? And we're now finding other similar sites buried in the, in the dirt, in the sand. They're all part of whatever this culture and civilization was, something that we have no idea of. I'm just saying, things go back really far. But for us, we can get back about 4,000 B.C. and be able, be able to say, yeah, this is when we think these things happened. Now, why do I go off on that tangent? Because I think this enters the story here. Um, as far as we can tell in the last 6,000 years, there has been two worldwide general collapse of civilization all over the world. The more recent one was in 1200 BC-ish, and that was the collapse of the late Bronze Age culture. And you can find all kinds of books, and everybody's got an idea, but nobody knows why. There is an earlier one, about 2200 BC. There is this massive collapse of civilizations all over the world. So all of these city-states in Mesopotamia, uh, vibrant culture, just collapsed. Was it famine? Was it, you know, a comet? What was it? Don't know, but everything just seems to stop. And it wasn't just in Mesopotamia. So in Egypt, the old kingdom collapsed at the same time. And we enter in, in, the, in Egypt, we got the old kingdom, the middle kingdom, and the new kingdom. And in between, at the end of the old kingdom, there is a collapse, and we go into what's called the first intermediate period, which is a time of chaos. And we're going to talk about that today and how that comes into the story. By the way, the uh, Hindus uh, River Valley uh, in India, Pakistan, we have two incredible cities and civilizations that were about 4,000 BC, same thing. So all over the world, everything collapsed. Don't know why. Most civilizations, it took them a couple, a hundred, couple hundred years to get restarted. That is the period of time that I believe that Abraham was born into. So conservative evangelical scholars, we can date many things in the Bible, and we have some outside evidence, and I will address this. I am going to do a, a series on Moses. And the date of the Exodus is absolutely crucial. 
um, for liberals to say <laughs> that uh, all of this is, is nonsense. But there was uh, an eclipse in ancient Assyria, which was documented in the Annals of the Kings, and our astronomers can go back. And turns out it is the longest solar eclipse that we have in recorded history. They know exactly what date it is. And from that date and the other dates in the Annals of the Kings of Assyria and some <clears throat> a couple places where we, we have corresponding uh, uh, people who are kings of Israel and, and what the year of their reign is, we, we can fix when the Exodus was. 1446 BC, uh, extremely controversial uh, if you're a liberal. But from that date, we can go back and say Abraham was born approximately 2161 BC. So it is right around the time of the societal collapse all over the world. As we read in Scripture and we go through the accounts in, in Genesis, we read how Abraham, excuse me, Abram's father, Terah, had three sons. Um, and they lived in Ur. Ur was one of the, the cities uh, that was in, in the Mesopotamian era, area. And it was thought that Ur, uh, before the collapse, was this incredible city with a very, very rich culture. Why would Terah leave Ur? And at least initially, he was going to go to Canaan. Well, Canaan was out in the middle of nowhere. It was just a bunch of pastures. There weren't a whole lot of stuff out there. So why was he going to leave, you know, New York City and go to Kansas? In all likelihood, it's because the world was going through this collapse. One of the sons dies while they're in Ur. And the son has a grandson, Lot. And um, so this Terah is going to go to Canaan. He packs up the family. And let's face it, in those days, you always did what the father said. Didn't matter how old you were. You, you, okay, Dad. They're going to go to Canaan. They get as far as the city. We're now, let's see, Ur is probably southeast in the Fertile Crescent. And they end up, they stop at a, at a city called Haran. Haran is different. It is a caravan across uh, a crossing point. So you've got a lot of trade. It's a trade hub. You know, you've got all the gas stations, all the trucks are stopping, uh, or camels anyway. So Tara decides, no, don't think I can handle, uh, you know, the agrarian world of you know, raising sheep. I'm, I'm going to stay here. So they stay in Haran until he dies. And now we pick it up, the story. Now, I will just briefly lay out the story of Abraham. We're going to look at the call of Abraham. And we're going to look at the covenant that was given to Abraham. And that's, uh, that's in chapter 15. In chapter 17, that covenant is enlarged. All right. And then we finally get to chapter 22, where... Abraham is tested. So that's kind of what we're going to look through today. So we're going to start with the call of Abraham, or Abram. Actually, he's called Abram to begin with. By the way, Abram means exalted father, 
which was ironic because he and his wife at that time was Sari, later changed to Sarah. Um, They were childless. So, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. From him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram is called by God to leave his house and his family, and he's not able to do that until his father dies, and that's in Haran. Haran. From the narrative, it seems pretty clear that God called Abram when they were still in Ur. But for whatever reason, when Terah got to the caravan city, he goes, no, we're staying here. And so they got stuck for several years until, you know, Papa passed. Now, what's interesting is that in verse 4, this is Abram's response. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. So he hears God's voice and he obeys it. And he takes the nephew Lot with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed Haran. Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Obviously, these are some pretty astute business people. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And so Abram built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then he moved on. Chapter 12, the first three verses, the call to Abraham is something that is very often preached on because we're part of this. Now there are seven, if you will, I wills, or promises that God gives to Abram. The first is, I will make you a great nation. Well, he doesn't have any kids, so that's in the future. I will bless you. I will make your name great. Well, we're talking about him, and that's 4,000 years ago. And you will be a blessing. And we will see how wherever he went, Abram was a blessing to those who were near him. Number five, I will bless those who you bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And uh, number seven, and here's where we come in. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. As we look at perhaps the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you just see that cycle of rebellion and and judgment. And yet, and we're going to start here in 12, we're actually going to start a redemptive program to, to bring everybody back in. But it's not like God just suddenly had an idea in chapter 12. We can go back to the Garden of Eden when he is cursing the serpent after the fall. And he talks about how the seed of the woman, okay, that the snake will bite the the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will crush Satan's head. Well, we would never say the seed of a woman. That's sort of an oxymoron. The seed of a man 
but you know, the woman contributes the eggs. So that was an odd thing to say, and yet isn't that exactly what happened? A virgin conceived, and that of course was Mary, conceived Jesus, God with us. So God had the plan already (laughs) way back before, and he lets the cycle play out, probably for several thousand years, and now finally, it's like, okay, you couldn't do it on your own. You got that down. Now let's begin in my, uh, my redemptive program, and it's going to start with this guy named Abram. Um, <clears throat> I want to tell you that Abram is a man of faith. But he was a man. And he was a sinner. And I'm going to describe, and I'm going to call them misadventures. Abram and Sari did some bad things. In fact, they, they almost <laughs> single-handedly, you know, throw, as the Brits say, a spanner in the works uh, to, to ensure that there would be no seed of promise coming, coming from Abraham. Uh, and each time God has to intervene to get everybody back on this redemptive track program. So a- Abram... Um, uh, was a man like you and I, and he made some mistakes, and God had to rescue him. Now, the first misadventure is at the end of chapter 12. They are in Canaan, the promised land, but there is a severe famine. So they go to Egypt. Why? Well, Egypt's got the Nile River, so there's a good chance that there is grain to be bought and food to be had in Egypt. While they're there, Abram says to Sari, I don't want anybody to kill me and take you off. So we're going to show up with all of our goods and everything. And when people see you and how beautiful you are, you tell them that I am your brother. I'll say you're my sister so they won't kill me and take you. So that's what they do. Now, this is lying. I said we're in the middle, of the, we're in what's called the first intermediate period between the Old Kingdom and the Middle Kingdom. It is a time of chaos. Civilization as they had known it had collapsed. Yes, there are still people that got to get up in the morning and figure out how to eat and sleep. That's true. But what happens in these intermediate periods in Egypt is kind of like Mad Max. Civilization has fallen in who's in charge whoever the biggest psychopathic warlord out there so during the first intermediate period we still have pharaohs they aren't related to the ones in the old kingdom dynasties these are just whatever psycho strongman stands up and goes yeah i'm going to be in charge of this heap of ruins that used to be the city of whatever so that is the person, this guy, the, in the story, he's referred to as Pharaoh. Again, he, he's, he's just the biggest bully. And he decides he's going to take Sarah into his harem, Sari into his harem. Um, now, the story goes on to tell us that in return, he throws a lot of government business towards Abram. And Abram gets quite wealthy with gold and silver and with animals and herds. Boy, 
What was going on there? Sari, sorry, was in a harem. You don't go into a harem to cook or to knit. You can go online. I, uh, I've always wondered about that. And uh, I went online several days ago as I was putting this together. And oh my gosh, there's all kinds of websites and questions. And, you know, all the Christian, uh, you know, answer kind of sites, you know, try to, you know, poo-poo this issue. Uh, I don't know. Don't know what was going on. Maybe, maybe Sarah, if she'd had a child soon after that, may not have been uh, Abrams, you know? Why? I'm pointing this out. Because these were ordinary people who did sinful things. Now, as it turns out, whatever happened there, and I don't know, at some point, bad things are happening to this psycho, Pharaoh, and he, he gets it, and he realizes that Abram is the husband. Probably Sari tells him at some point. He calls Abram in. He goes, what have you done to me? And Abram tries to explain it off, and the tough guy says, just get out of here. So takes all this government uh, contracting stuff he made from Pharaoh and at his wife's expense, and they go back into Canaan. You know, um, Abram and Sari, left to their own, would have totally disrailed God's redemptive plan. And if God had not intervened, you know, he never would have got Sarah back. And yet that was his wife, and that was where he was told was the promised seed was going to come from. Now we get in chapter 13. And story-wise, well, first, you know, for years, I would read this and i go, you know, the story of Lot, and it comes and goes throughout the story of Abraham, is, you know, it's all interesting stuff, but it's like, why? Why do we know, we need to know the detail about Lot? He's just, he's just this nephew that gets sent away. Well, Lot is a counterpoise to Abram. Abram is a sinner, but he's a man who, by and large, walks in faith. Faith in the promises of God. It's not always perfect, and a lot of times he has to take things in his own hands, which he messes up, and God rescues him. But by and large, and it's an upward walk in faith until he gets to the ultimate test, which is in chapter 22. Lot, meanwhile, is there is a contrasting character figure. So he is the nephew of Abram. Um, we know that Abram's father, Terah, worshipped the moon. Okay, that's what it tells us in, in Scripture. The moon was worshipped by most of the peoples throughout the Mesopotamian area for thousands of years. Isn't it interesting that the people still living in the Mesopotamian area, while they may not worship the moon, they have a crescent moon as their symbol of their religion. So just sort of curious fact. All right, so Lot would have been grown up where 
the moon god was worshipped, but then they leave. And now he's with his uncle, Abram, who seems to be following this Yahweh God. He can see how Abram is blessed, but he's not a man who walks in faith. He, he hasn't been offered any calling or blessing. He, he's an ordinary person. He walks by sight. Now, Abram gets so wealthy after he leaves Egypt, and so does Lot. And they have too many animals on the land. They, you know, their servants are fighting each other. And Abram realizes, we've got to split. So he takes Lot aside. Now, Abram could have said, I'm going here, and you're, you're the nephew. You get to go there. But he doesn't. He says, Lot, you choose what direction. And so Lot looks around, and he sees what he thinks is the most fertile and best area. So he takes that for himself. He walks by sight. He, he's a guy who raises sheep, says he's got gold and silver, he's a big herdsman, lives in a tent. And so he goes, separates, and he ends. There's a bunch of cities, city-states, around the Salt Sea. We call it the Dead Sea today. And the largest and most, you know, the one that was the richest was this uh, city of Sodom. And so that's where he pitches his tent. And so now as we go through the story of Abram, Lot comes in and out. And I want you to watch the changes in Lot as he gets further and further away from God. It's not all at once. It's very subtle. But again, it's a counterpoise to a man who does walk in faith. And his faith gets stronger and stronger as he goes. All right, in chapter 14, the king of the Elamites, Elamites, again, I said, these guys are all warlords, okay? It's not like King Charles, he sits on a throne and he's got a big palace and all that. No, he's got some little town or village. He declares himself to be king over whatever these people are. And this guy is like a Viking. You know what the Vikings are? They would um, uh, farm, okay, during good weather, as uh, soon as fall hit, uh, you know, let's go, it's fall. It's, it's time to go rob uh, Ireland. You know, let's go, let's go find a, a monastery somewhere so we can steal stuff. That's a lot of what was going on during this intermediate period. And that's this king of the Elamites. And so he gets his uh, band of merry men and he goes down and they, they do a raid on Sodom. And they take off a bunch of the people out of Sodom and they take down anything of any value and they hightail it out. Word comes to Abram. And so Abram has able to put into the field 318 trained men. So these guys, you know, herd sheep. Uh, they do security duty. I don't know. Maybe they got trained by Blackwater. But obviously these, this was his security team. He also has friends with some of the Amorites, and uh, they, they put together some, uh, some men to help. And so Aram, if you, if you actually read and look at a map, it's quite amazing. The raid in Sodom is in the southern part of Israel, down near the Dead Sea. Abram and his men chase these guys 
all the way up to Dan. Dan is in the far north. I mean, you're, you're just about in Lebanon. You know, that's how far north you are. And he overtakes them, takes them out, gets all the goods back, rescues all the people. Why do we need to know that? It's because as he is coming back, Abram has meetings with two different kings. The first king that he meets on the way back is he's taking all these people to Sodom. And he turns over the people to, uh, back to the king and, and all the wealth. By the way, why did they take people? Because these, these Viking guys, okay, yeah, they wanted the gold and silver, but they would sell the people into slavery. This is not a race issue because they all looked alike. This was, slavery was just, you know, up until about 200 years ago, that was the world. And they would sell them into slavery. So these people had worth. It's interesting that they were going north. They were probably headed to Damascus, big slave market. And they were going to sell all these people as slaves. So they're repatriated back to Sodom. Sodom, the king of Sodom is a wicked man. We'll, we'll see more about what Sodom was like, obviously. But he says to Abram, this is a test. This is a temptation, by the way. He says, look, thank you for giving my people back, uh, my slaves, and, you know, those who, well. But you can keep all the goods. So you can keep the gold, silver, you know, whatever, whatever of value other than the people you can keep. Friends, this is a trap. If Abraham, excuse me, Abram was to take that, the king of Sodom could have claim over him and say, I am your king now. And Abram got figured out. He says, no, no, I took an oath to God, you know, Yahweh, I, I, you know, I will accept nothing from you, not a shoelace, so that you cannot claim to be king over me. Okay, I, I have no allegiance to you, and I swore to God that I would have no allegiance to any other king. That was a temptation. So he was already wealthy. Now he could have been even more wealthy and getting more government contracting jobs from the king, but he would have to show loyalty to the, to the king of Sodom, and he refuses. Okay, he continues on. He's headed back home. He meets now the king of Salem. And we know this is man is named Melchizedek. Uh, now, Salem, peace. Jeru means city, city of peace, Jerusalem. So Melchizedek was the king. Uh, there, there, Jerusalem had been inhabited long before David. Uh, and it was a small little city up on the top of the hill there. But it turns out Melchizedek is a priest king. He is both king and priest. And he blesses. He blesses Abram. And Abram gives him a tenth, a tithe of whatever goods he got there that he had with him. Um, what is that all about? You know, it's the, the greater blesses the lesser. The lesser gives tithes to the greater. So Abram is acknowledging that this guy... Somehow, as a Gentile, he, he has figured out um, the God of the universe. And 
Melchizedek refers to God as El Olam, God, eternal God. And that is usually how the Gentiles refer to the, the, the God of the Jews, as El Olam, the God, God of eternity, the eternal God. Quite a difference. One king wants to tempt you okay, to do something bad, and the other, uh, who acknowledges God, gives you a blessing. Now, again, I say, why is that in the story? I mean, it's interesting. I mean, today, everybody's is fascinated on who Melchizedek is. It's a Christophany. It's a, it's a pre-incarnation of Christ. It's Shem, the son of Noah. I mean, I've heard all these things. The answer is, I don't know, and obviously nobody else does either, other than he was a priest, he was a king, and he is the archetype, and we studied this in Hebrews in the New Testament, that Christ is both our king and our priest after the order, after the type that Melchizedek gives here. All right, now that's good stuff. But it also adds to the story. Now we go, so we looked at the call, We've looked at sort of the counterpoise opposite character, and we'll see how he makes out. Now we go to the covenant. So it's the first time the covenant is given. This is chapter 15. I'm going to read the first uh, verse here. After these things, so after we get done with uh, Melchizedek and, and all the people at Sodom, after those things that happened, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your war reward shall be very great. Now, once again, <laughs> interpreters uh, interpreting you know, Hebrew into English, 21st century English, they make decisions. When the verse says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield, what do you think of? You think of a shield, you know, as somebody's in a sword fight or something. Well, no. Another translation for this word could be sovereign. When God says, I am your shield, he is saying in a sense, I am your king. Your reward will be very great. So you can see how it was important Abram turned down the temptation to let the king of Sodom be his shield, his king. And so after that's over, God says, you did good. I am your king. I am your shield. Verse 2 and following. And Abraham said, O Lord, my God, what, what will you give me for... All right, you, you say my reward is going to be great, but I, I have a lot of stuff. What the thing I need is a child, and I'm childless. And the heir to my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And we talked about that. And Abram said, Behold, you, you have given me no offspring. A member of my own household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram. This man, Eliezer, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought Abram outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars. In other words, count the stars if you can. And then God said to Abram, so your offspring shall be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Now, here it is. 
Catch this now, verse 6. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to Abram as righteousness. Abraham believed the word of God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul talks about it. It wasn't because of circumcision, and we'll get to that by and by. It was because he was righteous with God, not because he got circumcised. He was righteous with God because he believed. Paul talks about it, and and we see a discussion of that in, in Hebrews chapter 11 as well. Next, verse 7. And he, meaning the Lord, said, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Then he goes through and he enters into a very interesting ceremony. He has Abram come and and bring all of these animals and they cut them in half and they make Abram walk through it. And what he is doing is this is a ceremony to execute a covenant, like a contract. I'll come back to that in just a moment. I want to go back to verse 7. There it is in English. And he said, I am Yahweh. He is declaring to Abram his covenant name, the same covenant name that he gives Moses at the burning bush. And English does not do this justice, but he says, I am the Yahweh. This is my covenant name. Nobody else knows this name, but my covenant people. So a covenant is like a contract. Now, for you and I, we would not have a covenant. We'd have this piece of paper. We'd have two copies. We'd sit down. Uh, Maybe we'd have some witnesses. We'd sign it. The notary would notarize it. You know, maybe we'd have to file it somewhere. Well, that is the ceremony that goes on. Now, as this is happening, the sun goes down. Abraham falls into a deep sleep. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness falls upon him. Then Yahweh says to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and will be afflicted for 400 years, i.e. Egypt. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, the ten plagues. And afterwards, they will come out with great possessions, and we know that happened in Exodus. So this land I am promising you is going to go to your descendants, but not for the next however many years, 400 years, whatever it is, long, long time. As for you, Abram, you'll show gold to your fathers in peace. You will die in peace, and you will be buried at a good old age. And so we know he dies at 175. And your descendants will come back in the fourth generation. Verse 17 continues to talk about this covenant ceremony. And verse 18 summarizes it by saying, On that day the Yahweh made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And friends, if you are reading and looking at any of the news today, they're still talking about it. Do, do we have the right? Do, do the Jews have the right to go after this land? And, and if they do, then isn't a promise from, from the uh, Nile River 
all the way to the Euphrates? Isn't that what God promised them? They're still talking about it. And this was written over 4,000 years ago. Uh, I will come back to that in a bit. All right, get into verse 16. And once again, we have another misadventure. So the covenant, which, by the way, um, several decades ago, somebody got a PhD paper for doing study to show that uh, this covenant was, uh, I think, Solzarine. I don't pronounce things right. Uh, it did a lot of research to show that this was a typical covenant thousands of years ago in the Middle East where a king would have a contract or covenant with a vassal. And it looked much like this. So this was uh, a ceremony, a uh, something that was would have been known and understood by Abram. He was now God's vassal. He, this, God was now his great king. All right, back to 16. Um, even though they've got the promises and they're told they're going to get have all these descendants, uh, they want to jump the gun, and they just cannot wait on the Lord. And so Sari says, why don't you take my slave, Hagar, and have sex with her and then in that way? And as I said earlier, that was a very common custom in those days because a wife had a duty to to supply an heir. And if she couldn't do it, then she was expected to give one of her slaves to bear the child in her place. So that was pretty, uh, pretty common. And of course, Hagar gets pregnant and it just is the beginning of all this trouble. Let's go back to Egypt. Where was Hagar from? Egypt. When did Abram pick up this slave? Maybe it's while his wife was in the harem in Egypt, he he picked up this female slave. I don't know. And then when Sarah gets sent home, you know, Abram says, well, I have a present for you, another slave. That, That is a misadventure. They should not have done that. And that comes back to haunt them and continues to haunt them. Now, let's fast forward 4,200 years. We're dealing with it today, folks. The Muslims, but in particular the Arabs, say they are the descendants of Ishmael. And that Ishmael is the firstborn son. Abram took Hagar under the idea that it was because Sarah said it was okay and in place of. So they argue Ishmael is the firstborn son. To him goes the promise, and we should have all the land between the Nile and the Euphrates, and we need to kick all the, all the uh, Israelis out, all the Jews, the Zionists. Bad thing they did, and we're still dealing with the consequences today. All right, we now are into chapter 17, and this is now, if you will, the second covenant, or the first covenant enlarged. The First covenant was a promise contractual gift of the land between the two rivers. This time God is going to do the covenant again, only he will not only reaffirm that, the land, but he will say, I contract I, to give you a promised seed. And even tell you what his name's going to be. It's going to be Isaac, and it's going to happen next year. I mean, so we got the land, and now 
you're you're finally you're going to get a, a covenant to give you an heir. All right, here we go. Verse uh, chapter seventeen, verse one. When Abram was ninety nine years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, "I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between you and me, and may multiply you greatly." And he he falls on his face and. He says, behold, my covenant is with you. And he's going to do two things in this covenant. He's going to change Abram's name, okay, to commemorate this. And he's also going to have a physical sign in the flesh. So Abram, exalted father, is now going to be called Abraham, the father of a multitude. To remind Abraham, this is the promised, this is the covenant of a promised seed. And the second thing is, you have to be circumcised. The foreskin has to be cut off. Now, <clears throat> that's a kind of unpleasant thing. Uh, today in North America, most uh, male children within the first week are, are circumcised. But this was instituted when the guy was 99 years old. It would be a sign, you know, Every day you'd see this sign to remind you that God gave you this promise. And all of your descendants had to be circumcised so that every day they would be reminded that everything they had came through this covenant that God made with Abraham. No longer shall your name be Abram for your name will be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. There are people in Christian circles who somehow think that Christians have supplanted this covenant, the Jews from this covenant. I don't know how that can be. I'm just reading the words of God. To your offspring throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I give you the land of your sojourning and on the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. And you've got to keep my covenant. Every male, okay, who is eight days old, has to be circumcised. And if there is a descendant of you who does not get circumcised, they are cut out of the covenant. And then he goes on. So we're still in this enlarged or second covenant. God said to Abraham, As Sarah your wife, she shall not be called Sarah, but Sarah, you know, the mother of a multitude here. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she'll become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face, and he laughed, and he said, Shall a child be born of a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 99, <laughs> excuse me, 90, 90 years old, bear a child? And, and the and we could read later in the narrative, she is beyond menopause, all right? It is physically impossible for her to have a child. 
And Abraham thinks, and we're in the middle of this covenant, and he says, uh, Lord, what about Ishmael? You made me send him away and all that stuff, but, you know, he's a player. God said, no, 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 no. Sarah is your wife, and from her shall come the promised offspring. I will bless Ishmael because of you, and he will be the father of 12 princes, and he will be a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall deliver, bear to you next year. And when he had finished talking to Abraham, um, God went up from Abraham. And Abraham took his son Ishmael. He's probably about 13 now. And Ishmael says, you're going to do what to me, Dad? Yeah, well, we got to do it. And so they're all circumcised, including all the servants and slaves. I can just see it. Hey, you didn't tell me this part about the employment contract. Well, at any rate. God's covenant with Abraham is enlarged. We have not only the land, we have the promised offspring. We even have a name for him. We have a new name for Abraham. Now, this is something that was common in ancient times. You often got a new name or an additional name to recognize something that you did. So, for instance, in ancient Rome, the Roman general Scipio defeated the Carthaginians and this was in Carthage, which was on the uh, northern coast of Africa in the Mediterranean. This is the first Punic Wars. And in honor of him defeating the Carthaginians, the Roman Senate voted to add a name, and he was called Africanus Scipio as an honor for what he did to defeat uh, <clears throat> their enemies in the first uh, Punic War. So... That was a very common thing, ancient, ancient times. Now we come back to the Lot story. And wh why do we need this, you know? But here it is. It's Sodom and Gomorrah. This is chapters 18 and 19. Um, so there's the story of three visitors come to Abram, Abraham. Two of them we know are angels. The third, best we can tell, is a Christophany. This is God. Uh, it's probably second person of the Trinity. This is uh, the Son of God who comes in, 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 in the form of a man. And Abram um, realizes there's something different. And so he persuades them to stay for food. And if you read the story, I won't go all through it, but he prepares the food but does not share it with them. They're, they're reclining and eating the food, and he is standing like a servant. And at some point, um, the one who, who is a God come, come in the form of a man says, you know, I'm going to tell Abraham, my, my friend here, what we're going to do. And he talks about destroying Sodom and Gomorrah because of their wickedness. Now, the next little part in here is, is sort of kind of interesting. He, uh, uh, Abraham says, well, you know, if there's 50 righteous people in Sodom, would you save it? Yeah. And so now we get into this bargaining. Well, how about 40? How about 30? How about 20? How about 10? 
And this divine person stops him at 10 and says, you know, like, okay, we're done bargaining. If there are 10 righteous people, I will not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, um, can you imagine if the Lord spoke to you and you said, Lord, please, please save the people in Gaza. And what if the Lord said they're wicked? And you said, well, would you save Gaza if there were 50 righteous people? 40? 30? 20? You finally get down to 10 and God said, I will stop the war. I will save the people in Gaza if there are 10 righteous people. And you go to bed and you get up in the morning and Gaza's been destroyed. (gasps) There were less than 10 righteous people. That is the point of this story here. We, the reader, need to know how wicked this city was. There are less than 10 righteous people in this city. Maybe there were none. Um, But we need to finish the story of Lot. Now, the divine figure in the next scene is, is not there. It's just the two angels. And Lot is seated at the gate of the city. This is important because it means he is now a city official. And he's living in a house. He's traded in his tent and his sheep. He's, he's now a government employee uh, who sits at the gate. He is part of the apparatus that is supporting an incredibly wicked people. How wicked are they? Well, we get the story about that and the daughters. And it is just wicked. Now, does Lot take part in any of this? No, although he seems to be willing to throw his, his daughters t- to, to the mob. What the story is showing you is how far away Lot, a man who walked by sight, got. It wasn't all at once. It was little by little by little by little until there's no God anywhere around him. And if he's not participating in all of this incredible wickedness, he is certainly supporting and enabling it. And then, of course, the family flees. The wife turns around. She's turned into a pillar of salt. And eventually the story ends. They're in a cave. He gets drunk and has sex with his daughters. Doesn't that break your heart? Well, you know, Lot probably went to Awana as a kid. He, you know, he, he, he probably went to Sunday school as a young father. But somehow, because he walked by sight, he got further and further and further away. And when you do that, there is no God. God is not his shield. God is not protecting him as, as God had protected and, and saved Abraham several times. Friends, that is why Lot is in the story. What happens when you walk by sight and what happens when you walk by faith? Walking by faith may not always be perfect. And sometimes you you do such bad things, God has to rescue you. But by and large, you're making an effort and you're living in the right direction. Now, (laughs) that wasn't bad enough. We get to chapter 20. We have the third misadventure. And Abraham and Sari, they're moving around and um, 
the Kanakum went to a new place, and uh, there's a king there. And his name is Abimelech, the king of Greer, Greer, something like that. And once again, they get into this lying thing. Now, honestly, why anybody, and I think we've all wondered this, why would anybody want to take off some 99-year-old woman for sex? Why, why would they do that? And the answer, of course, is nobody knows. I know of a woman in her late 60s. She just went to a dermatologist, and the dermatologist said, my God, you're beautiful, and you have the skin in the face of someone who's 25 years less than your stated age. So I guess it's possible there are people who don't age as fast as others. People lived longer in those days. Abraham lived to be 175. Maybe along with living longer, maybe you age slower. But for whatever reason, Abimelech, the king of Greer, takes Sarah and takes her to his harem. Well, this time, God intervenes again. He visits Abimelech in a dream and says, you are a dead man. I've got this redemptive program going on, and this woman's supposed to get pregnant here and have a child next year, and you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. This is another man's wife. And he had brought all kinds of calamities and problems on all of the women there. And so Abimelech, you know, wakes up, gets all of his officials together, and says, you get this Abraham guy in here. Why did you do this? Why did you tell me this? Well, anyway, I should say, I forgot about this part. During the dream, Abimelech says to God, God, you know I haven't touched her. Okay? Am I planning to? Sure, but I haven't. Okay, you brought all this sickness on us. We're trying to deal with all these things. I have not laid a finger on this woman. I am not guilty. And God says, yeah, I know. And that, that may save you here. Abraham comes in. He goes, well, she is my sister. We, we have the same father. Terah was our, both of our fathers. We just had different mothers. So she's my half-sister. Well, that's an explanation, but they still lied because Abraham is their husband. Sarah is his wife. Um, Abimelech is a smart guy. He gets all this booty and loot together. He gives it to Abraham as a, a way to say, I'm sorry, I didn't touch her, okay, now, now go. The other thing that Abimelech notes in this story is he's told by God that this is a prophet, a prophet of God, and that good things will happen if you're, if you're nice to Abraham. So Abimelech, he's, he's got that one down. So why do we need to know that? Because it's still in the story, and it's going to come back again. But can you see, he's supposed, Sarah's supposed to have a child here pretty soon, get pregnant. How do we know that wasn't a Canaanite kid? You can see how, once again, they almost upset God's plans, but God intervenes to say, no, stop it. And he does, and if you'll pardon the phrase, puts the fear of God into Abimelech. All right, chapter 21. Apparently, we are told the Lord visited Sarah, just as he said. She conceives a child by Abraham. She's 99, and Abraham names him Isaac. He's circumcised after eight days. And 
course, Isaac means he laughs, and so both, both Abraham and Sarah had laughed when they were told they were going to have a child. I want to start pointing out something. When else in history, or biblical history, do we see someone who can't bear a child? Well, we have a few, and then God opens their womb. But I know of only two where it was physically impossible for a child to be born. One was this 16-year-old girl named Mary who was a virgin, right? And same thing with a 99-year-old woman past menopause. This is a miracle child. Now, in the case of Isaac with Sarah, okay, it really was Abraham. In the case of Mary, it was the Holy Spirit. So we now begin to see... We're identifying Isaac with Jesus Christ. So he has a miraculous birth, just as Jesus did. All right. Now, at the end of 21, we go back to Abimelech. So Abraham had dug a well, or his servants had dug a well. And some of the servants of Abimelech are using a well, and they start arguing over the water, and Finally, Abraham goes to Abimelech and says, you know, I dug this well, and your guys aren't letting us use it. What happens next is just priceless. How can I believe you, Abraham? How can I believe what you're telling me is true? Two things I know about you. You're a liar, and God likes you, and God blesses people who are good to you. I got that. Tell you what, Abraham, formerly the man formerly known as Abram. You swear an oath to me, okay? You swear an oath by your God. Swear an oath, and I'll believe you. So he does. And then Abraham actually pays for the well, even though he dug it. And Abimelech is a smart, smart guy. He's like, okay, I want you to stay. You're my good luck charm. You go wherever you want on the land. And from that day on, they had peace. This oath, I swear to tell the truth. I will do this. I swear to tell you the truth that I did do these things. And so the well is at a place called Beersheba. This is the treaty of Beersheba. Ber means well. And Sheba can either mean oath or seven. This is the well of the oath. We're going to see an oath again. But this oath allowed Abraham to live in the land in peace. And it allowed Abimelech to share in the blessing. Just as God is going to give this land to these people who are its descendants, And we, part of that seventh part of that call, the nations of the world, we're going to be able to live in that blessing. All right, all of that to lead us to the sacrifice of Isaac. After all these things, God attested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And God said, take your son your only son, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah to offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains at which I shall show you. 
So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took his two young men with him and his son Isaac, cut wood for the burnt offering, and rose and went to the place. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Abraham said to his young man, young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac. And he took his hand and the fire and they went up together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And Abraham said, here I am, my son. And Isaac said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both of them went together. And when they came to the place, now what, by the way, Moriah is generally, we believe, and scripture can show us this, uh, is the mount in Jerusalem, and it is where the temple where the temple, uh, uh, the Jewish temple set, Hebrew temple, until it was destroyed. So this is the same place. And we can see all that in, when we get into the story of David. When they, they get to the place, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on top of the altar, on top of the wood. You know, we're, we're now seeing Jesus was bound to a wooden cross. So we begin to start seeing the parallels here. Abraham reached out his hand, took his knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. And the angel of the Lord said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. Abraham went, took the ram, offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place, the name of that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. It is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it will be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, here we go. So the angel of the Lord, so God is appearing as an angel, and this would be the, the Son of Man. The Son of God is always the active agent carrying out the will of God the Father. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemy. And your offspring shall be, excuse me, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And they returned to the young men and went back to Beersheba. Friends, this was a test. How much would Abraham obey God's word? Did Abraham really believe that God would still keep his promise and raise the promised seed? I mean, he said, I'm going to give you a seed. And he said, it's Isaac. And through, and I'm going to make a covenant with Isaac. And now God tells him to kill the child. 
as a sacrifice. Is he going to believe the promise? You know, it's one thing to claim to trust God's word when you are waiting for something. It's quite another thing to trust and obey his word after it's given. The angel of the Lord said at first, I know now that you fear God. What does it mean to fear God? Well, in this case, to fear God means to reverence him as your sovereign, your king. To trust him implicitly, even if he asks you to do crazy things. And then to obey him without question. I know a lot of you will say, I could never sacrifice my child. Well, friends, God didn't ask you to. And notice, he didn't ask him to do this as a test until he had made all of these other great promises. This covenant. Covenant was supposed to be unbreakable. And now, I like this at the end. I swear. Now we go back to Abimelech and Abraham. I'm telling you the truth. I swear by myself, because there's no one greater. Okay, Abraham could swear by God. God swears by himself. There's nobody greater. That I am telling you the truth, and you will be blessed, and you will be at peace, and the nations of the world can share in that blessing. So now God has given a call. He's given a covenant. He's enlarged the covenant, and he now confirms that covenant with an oath. Maybe the overriding question throughout all of this is, what is saving faith or true faith? First observation is it's costly. Faith obeys completely the word of God. Faith surrenders the best to God, holding nothing back. And I'm thinking back to a couple of episodes where Mary of Mary and Martha She didn't hold anything back. She gave her dowry to anoint Jesus. That was everything she had. That's the faith that we're asked to have. Faith waits on the Lord to provide all of our needs. But the observation here is, but God does not provide until personal sacrifice has been made. How how, how do you show faith? How, How do you completely obey the word of Lord? You hold back not your best. You give your best. And, and you make that personal sacrifice. You walk on that invisible bridge. You, you give the sacrifice and, and you wait expectantly for the blessing to come. Once again, the obvious parallels, the miraculous birth, the wood, the cross. Abraham is going to drive the knife through Isaac. He's going to slaughter Isaac. In the same way, our sins pierced Christ on the cross. In both cases, God provide a substitute sacrifice. In the case of Isaac, the substitute sacrifice is a ram. We should die for our sins, and God provides a substitutionary sacrifice in Jesus Christ. The Apostle John said that Jesus was, excuse me, I'm sorry, John the Baptist said, Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Romans 8.32, Paul said, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. 
just some denouement now. In chapter 23, and they talk about the death of Sarah. This is a very significant thing, and it kind of goes by us in our culture. Abraham buys a field with a cave in order to bury Sarah. And this is in Hebron, and it's there today. This is significant because in ancient time, you were to be buried from your homeland. Jacob was buried. Even though he died in Egypt, they took him back to bury him there in Hebron. They kept the body for 400 years of uh, Joseph and carried it back to be buried there. When Abraham bought that land, he is declaring, this is my home. Now, I'm, f- I'm not from Haran. I am from Canaan, okay? You know, this is my place to die. This is my home now. So he throws his hat all in symbolically as well. At the death of Abraham, excuse me, after the death of Sarah, Abraham takes a new wife and has four more sons. Well, it's quite the guy. But you know, none of them are the seed of the promise. Yet, you're going to have a lot of heirs come from you. But it has to come through this line, and, and that is the plan of redemption. It says Abraham gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them, it's plural, by the way, and sent them away. And then he gave everything to Isaac, other than the gifts to the sons by the concubines. Abraham is clearly a polygamist. I'm, I'm wondering if maybe he had concubines, uh, not just in his old age, but maybe, uh, maybe a little longer. The point simply is, this is a man who walked by faith. He made mistakes. He was a sinner, and he had to be rescued. But he showed true faith, saving faith. He obeyed completely the word of God. He surrendered his best, and he walked in faith. And sadly, his nephew, Lot, did not. I think, too, I think it's too long a story for you to sit down and try to tell somebody. I, I'm speaking, what, an hour and a half. <clears throat> It is a powerful story. I think at the very least you can go through chapter 22 with someone and, and maybe explain how this was you know, the only true son and how much it meant and then walk a person through how, how much that meant and what the sacrifice was. Um, and again, God is never asking us to make that sacrifice, but he does ask us to walk in faith. All right, let's close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, that your words, I, I pray that I've said them correctly and that you would use uh, my narration to, to plant your words in people's hearts and, and give them more tools and confirm their faith. Oh Lord, we, we thank you for the faith of uh, Abraham and we thank you that we can enjoy in that blessing and promise that you have given him. In Jesus' name, amen.